Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. Today's selection of floretry is in memory of the teachings of Hazrat Atta Illah. May God be pleased with him. Some think that attainment of spiritual height is accomplished through personal excellence, but efforts will not permit one to gain sight of the sun or save one from the pestilence of ego that creates a solar eclipse. Don't look to yourself but seek divinity and do not go down that path asking favors, but incline only towards the serenity of worship so that you might one day savor treasures flowing through one's essential nature. If the one wants you to realize divine presence, God will clothe your empty quality with names and attributes that are royal signs bestowed at divine discretion on lowly wards according to the purposes of essence. What comes from the peasant is relatively unimportant, though it has its rightful place. What is both sufficient and necessary is that which comes to beings through divine grace. So become like the dead and let yourself go. Be a proper guest and permit your great host to show how things work and the lay of the land. This will enable you to derive the most benefit from what you're told, to understand that patient focus is the key to the soul's growth. Don't be disappointed if gifts are delayed. Let the giver determine when and where to deliver artful blessings that have been made just for you, and take what is given to do good works that show heartfelt appreciation. We flee from divinity both night and day, failing to see there is no separation from the one who oversees the passion play, where actors are locked in anticipation of a curtain call that is hidden from them. When we receive, the hand of benevolence comes into our lives, and when God withholds, then arms of constraint encircle us like a fence. Divine qualities shape our way, and all send us in directions that contain life lessons. 
Prayer is the elixir that removes all stain and guides us down the path to intimacy. Prayer is woven from a mystery whose main substance is faith and the reciprocity of lovers who are content with their station. Within there are seeds of possibility that must be buried in a nurturing earth which, despite its apparent obscurity, is the place from which fruits of divine worth are grown through the gardener's merciful work. Do not long for contraction or expansion. Let your entreaty be for perfect slavery. The only intention should be to serve none but your Lord and to express your sovereignty through observing the states and stations of truth. When the light of zikr truly starts to burn, it ruins the temple of worship within. As it consumes all, one will come to discern. It's the fire that takes away the night's sin. It is the bright lantern that leads one aright. Following story is entitled, An Event. A group of people were taking an ocean cruise which was scheduled to make a number of stops at various exotic locations. At each port, the passengers were told they would have so many hours to explore the island, town, historic sites, or countryside, depending on the nature of the stop, before having to return to the ship and set sail on the next portion of the voyage. On the basis of past experience, the company owning the cruise line had established several rules which were to govern the behavior of people during these stopovers. In fact, these rules were considered to be sufficiently important that certain stipulations were even written into the contract covering the conditions of the voyage, and prospective clients had to agree to these rules before being permitted to sign on for the trip. First, if any of the passengers did not return to the ship on time, the crews would continue on without such individuals, and those people would have to make their own alternative arrangements for returning home. Secondly, although people were free to either buy or pick up whatever cultural artifacts they came across during those stops, the passengers were all responsible for the storage and safekeeping of such artifacts, so if passengers were concerned about someone stealing any of their onboard possessions during these stopovers, people were advised to take their property along with them while visiting the island town or historic sites. One of the crew members was a sort of amateur anthropologist, and she noted that the individuals who went on these cruises tended to fall into a number of different behavioral categories. Although there was a certain amount of overlap among a few of the members of the different categories who spent some time with more than one group. Indeed, the general pattern discovered by the amateur anthropologist was so consistent that even while one might not be able to predict prior to a particular voyage which person would fit into any given category, the overall statistical character of the pattern tended to remain the same from one voyage to the next. For example, there was one group of individuals who approached the cruise as a symbol of having arrived at a certain level of status. According to these individuals, possessing the time and money to participate in these trips said something about the character of the person engaging in that kind of activity. 
Moreover, the cruises had a reputation for being rather special since, among other things, they traveled to such interesting places. There was so much to learn, and anyone who took the extended deluxe package was considered to be someone of substance and quality, an educated person of culture, refinement, and accomplishment. A further group of people were connoisseurs with respect to different kinds of collectibles. They seemed to be in competition with one another with respect to whom could acquire the most rare cultural artifacts during the stopovers. In addition, the more someone's collectible was steeped in historical lore and captivating legends of scandalous, amorous, and or daring deeds, the greater would be the value of this or that artifact as a topic of conversation during and after the cruise. Apparently, some of the people from this group were one of the reasons the cruise line had instituted its rule about passengers taking their valuables with them whenever they left the ship and when exploring the new port of call. After all, the cruise line did not want to be considered liable for whatever possessions of the passengers were lost or stolen. Unfortunately, the passengers in this group became so loaded down with cultural artifacts that they often couldn't move fast enough to make it back to the ship in order to comply with the cruise's stated time of departure. As a result, they often had to be left behind. Many of the people in this group were initially very excited about their bargains, finds, and discovered treasures. Yet when they got back to the ship and were able to examine the collected items more closely, what seemed so valuable on land appeared to be rather mundane and commonplace when seen in the privacy of their staterooms. However, they couldn't divulge such an unsettling and unpleasant discovery to anyone else for fear of being considered a fool and or a plebeian collector. In addition, there were, of course, all the problems associated with having to constantly lug one's valuables around in order to keep up pretenses and or to protect the items from would-be thieves. In fact, this process of having to lug around their possessions with them all the time frequently led to all manner of back problems and spinal misalignments. As a result, there was a thriving onboard industry involving medical doctors, chiropractors, massage therapists, herbal practitioners, financial advisors, and emotional counselors to help alleviate the various kinds of pain arising out of collectibles. Naturally, there were a group of people who, by choice, circumstance, or education, were not opposed to separating passengers and or crew from their possessions, that is, to take what was not theirs. Some of these people were even government representatives of one sort of another. In addition, there were people in this latter group who seemed to seek out opportunities for creating difficulties in the lives of others. This tended to involve either stealing from or some other form of trying to exploit the vulnerabilities of passengers, crew, and or the inhabitants of the various stopovers. Another category of people saw the crews as a chance to socialize and network. These people spent much of their time, whether on ship or during the various stopovers, looking for the appropriate sort of people to be with, people who reflected the right sort of values, breeding, politics, ambitions, careers, or interests, and with whom one could have intelligent, civilized discussions, and thereby pass the time while enjoying the different experiences which each cruise invariably generated. 
Running in the right circles was very important to such people, despite the dizziness which such running tended to engender from time to time. Closely associated with, but distinct from, the foregoing group were the individuals who considered the crews to be one long, mobile party. These were people who had paid good money to take the crews and felt that as long as the basic conditions of the contract governing the voyage were not violated, people should be free to do whatever they liked and to pursue whatever pleasures might be agreed upon by consenting parties. Then there were the scholars who saw the voyage as a way to study different cultures, philosophies of life, histories, governmental frameworks, ecological systems, and so on, under pleasant, if not enjoyable, circumstances. More often than not, they came on board with boxes and cartons loaded with scientific instruments so they could precisely measure this or that variable, although they had not yet come up with a device for assessing, let alone detecting, the quality of any of the quantities they were measuring. In between stopovers, these individuals often secluded themselves in their staterooms or the ship's library as they developed their theories about what they observed on the various islands in historical sites. Or they busied themselves with preparing erudite papers for the Journal of Obscure Scholars. Rumor had it that on more than one occasion, individuals from among this group of people became so absorbed in their research that they failed to get back to the dock in time to board the ship before it left. Apparently, this group, along with the aforementioned collectibles group, were among the primary reasons for the redrafting of the cruise contract to include a variety of riders detailing liability issues. Although, frankly speaking, a certain portion of blame for the sort of problems which led to the rewriting of the cruise contract also should be laid at the feet of some of the members of the following group, since the individuals from among this group sometimes were found wandering with slackened jaws and vacant expressions about the islands, entirely oblivious to their surroundings and the fact they needed to get back to the ship by a pre-established time. More specifically, this latter group consisted of individuals who might be referred to as forming an aesthetically inclined group. They spent their time on board as well as during the stopovers, writing stories or composing poetry or making films or painting pictures or creating music using the events of the voyage as subject matter. These individuals usually didn't have any idea about where their creative inspirations came from, but apparently for many creative souls, possession is nine-tenths of the law. In any event, sometimes these people were so taken with the creative efforts being manifested through them that they became ecstatic with the I-ness of it all and lost track of everything but themselves, or at least who they presumed themselves to be. Another enterprising group of individuals used the cruise as a sort of floating business center. Not only did they make commercial deals of one kind or another while playing shuffleboard or while skeet shooting on one of the lower aft decks of the ship or while sitting around the dinner table, but as well at each and every port to which they disembarked, they went in search of new possibilities for either exporting or importing the latest line of widgets. In addition, they seemed to be engaged in endless rounds of musical chairs involving money, careers, jobs, and communities. Some passages saw the voyage as an interesting set of experiences, a way of passing time as they traveled from one point to the next, frequently entertaining, often intriguing, 
challenging on occasion, sometimes dangerous, and permeated with a sense of mystery. These individuals came, they saw, they learned, and they tried to reflect on the significance of what they learned through these experiences and utilize such learning to become more loving, compassionate, empathetic, generous, helpful, patient, and tolerant with respect to the other passengers, as well as in relation to the people who lived in the places where the cruise ship stopped. The ship's amateur anthropologist, who quite informally, but over many years of observation of and conversation with the passengers, had come up with the different categories of people which had been outlined above, also had come across a certain amount of evidence through this data, was rather elusive and hard to establish, concerning the existence of secret agents from various governments who were using the voyage as a cover for conducting operations of a, well, secret nature. The anthropologist was never quite sure about the purpose of such operations or against whom these operations were directed, possibly the cruise line or maybe the crew or the passengers or perhaps the islands and towns where the ships stopped during the voyage or maybe even other agents. Although the cruise contract permitted almost every kind of individual to have an opportunity to participate on the various excursions, the one group which was specifically forbidden to enter the premises of the ship were lawyers. Somewhere along the line, someone had made a judgment that they were hazardous materials and therefore in good conscience could not be transported via the cruise lines because of the dangers their presence posed for other human beings. Well, to make a long story considerably shorter, one day, nearly a week after the ship had left one of the scheduled stops, the ship had an unexpected meeting with an iceberg in the darkness of night and quickly sank. No one knows what happened to the people on the ship. A board of inquiry was convened, perhaps by lawyers and or secret agents for oblique hidden purposes other than seeking to determine the truth of things, to review and analyze various quote-unquote, facts concerning the aforementioned event. The final report has yet to be issued, but a highly placed source who wishes to remain anonymous intimates there was a testimony from a mystery witness who left the ship shortly before it struck the iceberg, and those journalists who are in the know indicate that the board's findings will really shake things up. Apparently, much more was going on with respect to the crews than many of the passengers or crews suspected. Video footage at 11. This week's musical interlude is called Memoirs.
Since the beginning of time, there have been an unimaginably large number of choices that have been made by the beings that populate the universe. Relative to all the choices that have been made or could have been made, your virtually infinitesimal minute choice has induced you to be listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Well, I suppose all offers can be refused, so I'll amend my opening statement and simply say, I'm going to make you an offer that I hope you won't refuse. I would like to offer you free, and I do mean free, access to all 40 books that I have written, plus 35 pieces of floetry that were composed over the years, as well as five videos and some podcast recordings covering different topics. This is all contained in the Bridge software that is available through my website, www.anab-whitehouse.com. If you go to my website, click the Bridge software choice on the drop-down menu one option, and then discover how to download the Bridge software for free, no strings attached. My hope is that you will like what you find in the software and, therefore, will be willing to come back and participate in my Patreon campaign to give books to various libraries. But even if you have no interest in supporting the foregoing Patreon campaign, nonetheless, the Bridge software is still yours to have for your personal reading, listening, and viewing experience. The title of today's edition of Meditative Essays is Murid. On the Sufi path, there is the seeker, Murid, and there is the sought, Murad. Ostensibly, we might suppose we are the seekers and God is the sought, but things are not always what they seem to be. When a person becomes interested in pursuing the mystical path, the individual thinks, This idea and interest has come from herself or himself. Perhaps the individual had been reading an article or book on mysticism, which the person came across in some manner or other. Maybe the individual ran into somebody at school or at work who was interested in mysticism. Possibly the person heard about a public lecture on mysticism and decided to go. There are many ways to rationally reconstruct events to have them make sense to us after the fact. Most of the time, all of the little things which had to happen in order to get us to the point where we, for example, saw an article or heard an announcement about a lecture or came into contact with a given individual, are lost in the mists of forgotten memory. We do choose, we do have free will, but we also have destiny. Events surrounding our choices are orchestrated. The choices we in reality have are not necessarily as many as we might like to think is the case. We choose events, but events choose us as well. Sometimes the only choice we may have is A, to acquiesce to varying degrees to what is transpiring, or B, to try to resist in some way the way things are unfolding, Indeed, our options even may be limited merely to picking the degree of acquiescence or resistance to events which we cannot avoid. 
In considering a course of action, many ideas may flutter into and out of consciousness. We assume these ideas are generated by us, but we have no conclusive etiology of the origin of ideas. Modern neurophysiology has brought forth a great deal of evidence linking impaired cognitive functioning with damage to specific brain sites. Nonetheless, no one, neurophysiologists included, has the foggiest notion of how or if neural impulses of bioelectric circuitry or neurotransmitters working individually or in tandem produce ideas or consciousness or reasoning. One can show that by tinkering with the tubes and circuit boards of a television set, one can disrupt the functioning of the set in precise ways. Yet this does not prove the images and sounds made possible by the set originate from within that set. We all know the signals originate elsewhere and are transmitted through the air or through cables to the television. The ideas which arise in our consciousness are not necessarily our own. They may have many different sources, including spiritual ones. Sufi masters indicate God is, in a sense, transmitting signals to us all the time. Some of these messages are in the form of external events. Some of these signals come through our bodies, or our minds, or our emotions, or our hearts. Divinity is calling out to us in diverse ways. From the moment we come into this world, God is trying to get our attention. Hello? Hello? Is anybody at home? More often than not, we are out to lunch or on holiday. When something finally clicks in us, and we become interested in religion or spirituality or mysticism, we tend to want to take credit for what is happening. We speak in terms of our search and our seeking. In reality, we have been the sought. God has been the seeker. Why would God seek us? God knows the spiritual potential which is in us. After all, that potential was created and put there by divinity. God, out of pure love, compassion, generosity, and kindness, wishes to share something of divinity with us. God has been seeking us out to apprise us of what is possible. In effect, God is seeking out human beings in at least two senses. First, God is seeking us out in our unredeemed condition of spiritual dissipation. God is calling on us to leave our fallen state of ignorance, darkness, and density and to return to the knowledge, light, and subtlety of divinity. Secondly, God is seeking out the unique, essential, spiritual capacity within us. Only when this capacity is realized do we become fully human. Only when this capacity becomes active do we fulfill the purpose of our potential. If we willingly respond to the divine overture to return to God in a state of spiritual redemption, this is commendable. However, if we willingly respond to God's entreaties and struggle to realize our unique, essential potential, this is the best. The Sufi masters take this seeking of us, the sought, by God, the seeker, one step further. According to them, human beings are in essence divine, although we are not divinity in essence. There is both immanence and transcendence in God's relationship with human beings. God is closer to us than life itself, yet God also is entirely independent of us. 
God's closeness or imminence to us is expressed through the divine character of the potential inherent in our essential spiritual nature. At the same time, God's transcendence is expressed through the distinction drawn between us, even in our essential nature, and the essence of God. Human beings always remain human, even in redeemed and fully realized forms of spirituality. Our capacity to know God is limited by our spiritual capacity. We only know of God what divinity permits. When God seeks us in order to induce us to seek divinity, God is calling us to realize our essential capacity in true identity, which has divinity inherent in it. When we respond to God's call, we take the role of seeker and God becomes a sot. Nonetheless, God becomes a sot in a very special sense. God is being sought in the forms of manifestation which give expression to our unique capacities and essential identity. Consequently, we are seeking the divine within. In effect, we are seeking our own true selves. Ultimately, God is the seeker and God is the sought. However, in a reflected sense, we also are the seeker and the sought. It is all a matter of perspective. To be a true seeker or more read, one has to understand one's responsibility as a potential murad or object which is sought by God. That which divinity is seeking within us is, as indicated in the foregoing, the true self. If we do not seek to realize our essential capacity, we will not be able to worship, love, and serve God in accordance with our spiritual potential. As a result, we will have missed our essential calling in life. We will have failed in our fiduciary responsibilities in relation to the potential which God has entrusted into our care when we were, in a sense, given existence. We must seek our essential uniqueness because this is what God is seeking from us. If, by the grace of God, we realize our true self, then according to Sufi masters, we will come to understand that the seeker and the sought are different manifestations of one in the same reality. The relationship between the initiate and the spiritual guide reflects all of the foregoing. More specifically, if God wishes, an initiate comes to realize in time that the true self of the sheikh is God's way of inducing the initiate to seek his or her own essential self. One first comes into contact with one's own essential self through the reflection provided by the true self of the sheikh. By becoming introduced to our true selves through association with the true self of the sheikh, one comes face to face in reflected form with divine reality. Everything which the sheikh does with respect to the initiate is a manifestation of God seeking to induce the initiate to realize one truth, namely, the essential capacity of the individual. This is what actually is being sought by God, and therefore by implication also by the spiritual guide and the initiate. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Thank you.